This morning, we will continue in our series on living in community. We're a family, and we have been studying from the book of Acts in Acts chapter 2, the, the idea of fellowship, which is the English word that we get from the Greek word koinonia. And if you remember, we said a couple of weeks ago, koinonia is the act of sharing in the activities or privileges of an intimate association or group. We are an intimate association or group. We're supposed to be. We're supposed to be a church family. We're supposed to be people who carry one another's burdens, who rejoice when they rejoice, who mourn when they mourn. We are to live in community. Christian community has been defined for us as a group of believers united in Jesus Christ. We're united together. We are in relationship. For the purpose of using our spiritual gifts, that means we're to participate, and we're to use our personal resources for the mutual good and sanctification. We are to share. We are to share our resources. We are to share our time and our talents. We're to share our energy. We're supposed to be in fellowship with one another that would lead to a participation in meeting the needs of not only those in our sanctuary, not only those in our immediate fellowship, but also to meet the needs of our community. We are to have these shared experiences. We talked about that last week. We talked about the idea that, that, that we mourn with those who mourn. We rejoice with those who rejoice. In fact, some of you Alabama fans in here today ought to be mourning with the Tennessee fans in the room. My wife's one of those, so I mourn with her. We are to rejoice, Tennessee fans, with those who are rejoicing. So we should be rejoicing with the Alabama fans. You say, well, Keenan, you're getting kind of silly now. Well, no, we're actually we're not. Because we take those things serious. And we, we are people who should be Christian about the way we act with one another, even when it comes to SEC football. I'm meddling now. But we are taking this series, when we talk about sharing personal resources for the good of all, we're talking about sharing experiences and participation, we're talking about walking in fellowship together, we're taking all of this out of Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42. So if you have your Bibles, turn with Acts chapter, to Acts chapter 2 with me. Also go ahead and flip over to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, we will be spending a lot of time there this morning, so you'll be able to go back there when we're ready for for it, but come to Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42. Again, I encourage you to bring your own copy of God's Word, and I encourage you to put your copies of God's Word in this style, not necessarily on an app. Uh, I'll tell you, Shane, I can't always remember exactly where I read something out of God's Word, but I can usually, usually remember what side of the page it's on. And I can kind of get a feel for who wrote it and what book it's in, so I can get to that book and I can scan the sides of pages and because I have that kind of memory. You can't really do that with an app. You can't really do that. So I'd encourage you to bring your own copy of God's Word so you can make notes. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42, we have read the last couple of weeks, and here's what we read again. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, 
attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So what we want to talk about this morning is this idea of being together and sharing. And we have to have the right perspective when we read God's word because we believe that God's word is inerrant. We believe that God's word is inspired. We believe that God's word is just that, God's word. So when we are reading the scriptures, it doesn't matter if it's Luke writing in the book of Acts. It doesn't matter if it's Paul, as we will read in a little bit out of 2 Corinthians. Whoever that writer is, if if we believe that they were inspired by God, we can understand that what we are reading is words from God. So when we talk about the idea of sharing together, we are talking about your first fill-in on the back of the bulletin is sharing is obedience. We are called by God to share in obedience. We have already seen that we are together in fellowship, sharing a common life that all begins with relationships. We have communion with one another. We have communion with God and the one encourages and impacts the other. We, our impact, our, our, our relationship with God should impact our relationship with each other and it should work in that order and it does whether we want to believe it or not, but we can sometimes tell what our relationship is with God by the way we treat one another. They work together. With these relationships are, 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 are what we would call communion with God and communion with each other. Then last week we said that through fellowship, through koinonia, we have this common life that is characterized by activity. As we participate in common worship, we all come together and as a corporate body and we worship together. We share common experiences, as we've already mentioned. We mourn together, we rejoice together, and we work together in common service. We have discussed and realized that our Christian faith is not a spectator sport. It's not something to just come and sit and soak and sour, as my pastor back home used to say. You can come soak it all in, and if you never get rid of any of it, it's not doing you or anybody else any good. You're just getting it all for yourself, and it's all about you. But he is saying to us that we are supposed to be a family working together. Today, we're looking at that third aspect, sharing. Specifically, sharing of personal resources. He tells us, and in, in Luke writes in verse 45, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. The purpose of the, buying, of the selling of possessions, the purpose of bringing these things together communally was for the, the mutual good of meeting the needs of the people. We read very, something very similar about the early church in Acts, in Acts chapter 4, verse 32. It said, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. You see, there is an understanding throughout the New Testament. There's this understanding as you read God's word and you read the gospels and you read the uh, pastoral epistles that Paul wrote and you read Peter and you read these things. As you get this understanding that the more we recognize and we understand what the grace of God means for us, the more we will be willing to serve him and intuitively love him more. 
And the more that we are loving him, the more we are going to serve him in all aspects of our life. You see, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, he wrote that, uh, that, that I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He wrote those things and he moves, and we're very familiar with that verse. It's the living sacrifice. Paul is writing to Jews in Rome. He's writing to believers who have grown up in the Jewish faith to begin with. They understood what it meant to bring a sacrifice to, a, to God. They, even those who, who, who followed idols, those who, who were pagan and had false gods, they would also sacrifice. They would also bring offerings. And they understood what it meant to have a dead sacrifice to give. But Paul's saying in this day, in this time, if we're going to be a follower of Jesus, that it is our life that is to be the sacrifice, a living sacrifice. I've often said when I do premarital counseling, as I, as I talk to those who are engaged, I talk to husbands and wives who are engaged together. Well, they're not husbands and wives yet. They're, they're still engaged. We're doing their premarital counseling with them, and Peg and I will sit there at the table, and I'll say to them, gentlemen in particular, Paul tells us in Ephesians that, that you are to, uh, to die for your wife like Christ died for the church, how he gave himself up for her. And I told, remind them, it is easier to die for her, it's easier to take a bullet for her than it is to live for her. Your life is to be the sacrifice. The way you live, you give up your own needs, you give up your own desires. When we're following God, it's not about walking a legalistic pathway of checking boxes as we studied in the Sermon on the Mount. It is about the fact that our life, we are living our life to serve him. Paul moves out of chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, and moves into a section in my Bible. There's a heading there that's called the marks of the true Christian. He shows us the ways that we are supposed to live, and there's many things there that Paul writes about that very well correspond to the Sermon on the Mount that we just finished studying. He says things that as believers, when it comes to our life with one another, we're supposed to have genuine love. We're supposed to even hate evil, not just dislike it, not just be against it, but to hate evil. We're supposed to cling to what is good. We're showing brotherly love and affection. And he says, if, if there's anything, you should try to outdo one another and it's showing honor to one another. It's almost like a competition. Who can be more honoring to each other than, than, than me? Who could be, I want to I be the one that comes out on top when it comes to showing honor to someone. So, so show honor. He says, rejoice in hope and be patient in hard times. He says, pray and bless those who persecute you. Celebrate with celebrators and weep with mourners. He's reminding them to be unified as believers, as a family, and nestled right in the middle of these true marks of a Christian. Nestled right there in the middle of the way that Paul is saying that if you're going to live your life as a living sacrifice for God, these are the things you should do right in the middle. Verse 13 says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. I told the first service that my wife has the gift of hospitality. She doesn't have to seek to show it. It comes naturally to her. I'm not one of those people. If we're having an event and there's going to be food there, I'm like, well, let's put a table up and we'll put the food on the table. And she's like, no, it has to have a tablecloth. And I'm like, for what purpose? It's just going to get messy when people spill the food. 
I'm very practical and pragmatic that way, Shane. So, so I'm just saying, I don't, but for her, it's no, no, no. We want the people to feel comfortable and encouraged. Like we've gone to effort for them. So you put a tablecloth on there. And, I'm, and you, I've been married 23, almost 24 years. And I know to say, yes, ma'am, and do that. Some of us don't have to seek to show hospitality. But the, those of us who do, we're not left off the hook. He said to do that. Seek to show hospitality. Make people feel comfortable by the way you greet them. But we also have to make sure that we admit, don't miss the part where he says to meet the needs of the saints. We have to meet the needs. And remember, this is a moment of Paul writing, and he might as well have said, thus saith the Lord. So we are commanded to meet the needs of the saints. So how do we do that? Many ways, actually. But the most basic way is by our giving to the church. This allows the church to do ministry, including meeting direct needs of the saints and including meeting the needs of those who are in our community. It gives us an opportunity to be the hands and feet of Jesus in a very practical, pragmatic way. The Christians in Acts chapter 2 and, and chapter 4 were using their personal resources to meet the needs of those in the fellowship. And Paul provides a principle, a biblical principle in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. You're already in chapter 9, so look back one, one chapter. First, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, in beginning of verse 13, he says this. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened. So he's not, he's not saying you give so much and you be so generous that you're relieving the needs of others for, and then you end up being burdened. He's not saying that. He says, but that as a matter of fairness, verse 14, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need that there may be fairness. What's he saying? We're a family. We give because we're commanded to. We give because that's in obedience to God. We give so that we can help meet the needs of others. And when that time comes, and if it comes that you need help as well, others have given for the sake of your need. It's at this point that I would like to go ahead and give you the other two fill-ins on the back of your bulletin. You see, I wrote out this outline two weeks ago, knowing I wasn't going to be in the office last week and knowing that uh, Sue was going to hound me until I gave her an outline. I went ahead and wrote it out and gave it to her, but then God did some changing as, as time went on. So I want you to get this. Sharing is obedience. Sharing brings joy. Don't miss that. Sharing brings joy. And sharing glorifies and pleases God. What I want to do with, us, with you the, for the rest of our time together is to spend these last minutes of having a true old-fashioned Bible study. I want us to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. I want us to look at that verse by verse as we walk through it, and you will see sharing is obedient, sharing brings joy, and sharing glorifies and pleases God. You will see these points in there. And I've also left you some scripture references there that you can go back and read later yourself. But I want you to catch out of, out of this section of 2 Corinthians the principles Paul lays out when it comes to giving, the idea of sharing our resources. We're going to start in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, right at verse 1. It says, Now it is superfluous 
for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. And he starts off with a word right off the bat, superfluous, superfluous, superfluous. You know, it's a hard word to say. I read out of the English Standard Version. Maybe I should have got the New Living Translation for that one and got a different word for you. But basically what he is saying when it is superfluous, it's hard for me to say, it is more than is needed. It's more than is desired. It's not necessary. He's talking about the ministry of the saints. And anytime we're talking about ministry this morning, it is specifically about meeting the needs of people. So what he is saying is it's not necessary for me to tell you about the ministry or the meeting of the needs for the saints because, and he goes in verse 2, for I know your readiness. He doesn't have to continue to tell them about it because he knows they're ready. Of which he says, I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year. And your zeal or your eagerness to help has stirred up most of them. The idea of stirring them up. We hear that also in Hebrews where we should stir, stir one another on to do good works. It's an idea of almost challenging them to a competition. Because of the people of Achaia's faithfulness, the people in Macedonia are now being encouraged when they've heard that these folks who honestly were pretty poor and didn't have a lot to give, but they were trying to send money to help out the saints in Jerusalem and in Macedonia. So that he heard about it, they heard about it, and now they're, they're encouraged to do it themselves. Look at verse 3. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you. We would be humiliated for being so confident, he's saying. So he's boasting about them. He's, he's talking them up. He's giving this other, church, this other church some attaboys about this church in Achaia. He is saying, I'm going there, and they're going to have an offering ready. They've already said they want to be a part of what's going on, and they're going to have that. And he said, now please have it ready, because I don't want to get there, and after all my boasting, be embarrassed by the fact that you haven't done what you need to do. You know, there's actually, this is a, a nice little spot to stand off to the side and say something else. There, is, there, there are times that, that, and what comes to my mind as Paul writes this, is times that our church will have a special event. And I don't have any in mind in particular, but I have been, over my 25 years of ministry, I have been in different churches who have had special events. And I'm going to use one of those churches as an example instead of y'all. But I'm telling you, I've been there, and, and they had this, we have this special called event. We have someone come in. We have someone come in to, to, to edify and to equip or to build up our body of believers. And very few people came out. And suddenly your staff, or not your staff, their staff, is embarrassed. And as Paul used the word humiliated, because we had made these preparations and they didn't show up. In this case, Paul is saying, I don't want that to be the case. I want, we have been confident, and he says in verse 5, So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, and not as an exaction. A willing gift could also be translated there as a blessing. It carries the sense of a gift given as a sign of graciousness, gracious kindness to promote the livelihood of the recipient. 
especially with a giver characterized by joyful generosity. Joyful generosity. We're going to hear the word generosity quite a bit through this morning. The idea of generosity is giving more than was expected. You say, Canaan, there's no, there is no New Testament principle. You can't turn to any New Testament principle spot and find for me a, an area that says you are supposed to tithe in the New Testament. You all probably heard people say that. There's this younger generation coming up who, who has not been educated fully yet in the scriptures, and they think that there is not a New Testament mandate for giving to the church. And they're right. There is not a New Testament scripture that I can point to that says you're supposed to give a tithe to the New Testament church. But do you remember back in the Sermon on the Mount? You remember when Jesus says, I have come to fulfill the law, not to eradicate it. He has come to make it more complete. He has come to give a proper interpretation of it. In the Old Testament, they were told to give a tithe, to give a 10% of all things, first fruits of their gardens, first fruits of their herds, first fruits of any monies that they may bring in. They were supposed to have all of these things, and God has set up a legalized way of making sure that his church, that his people are taken care of, that these priests who were uh, not receiving a salary per se, they were not given an inheritance of the land, they were told that they would live in these cities and that these people would supply the need. And God knows, as he should because he is God, he knows that given our freedom and we might make the decision that we're not going to give we might have a hard month we might have some some things going on where we say this month is is too tight i'm not going to give this month so he set up for his israelite people the idea of a a requirement that they bring in this tithe but jesus came to fulfill the law not to get rid of it so in the same sense as he did when the sermon on the mount basically what we're talking about is you're right it's not just a tithe in fact he says to give generously all through the new testament it is joyful generous giving it all belongs to god And he's asked for us to use all of it as a living sacrifice. We are not owners of what we have. We are stewards. We are managers. All of it comes from God. And he wants us to use all of it in a manner in which he would deem right. And part of that is bringing in the money to the church, bringing in the resources to the church. He says he does, Paul says he doesn't want it to be an exaction. That's a, that's a strange word, not a word many of us use. It's an act that would victimize or exploit someone. It treats them unfairly. In this case, the exaction carries with it a sense of giving grudgingly. You know, I had a thought this week as I studied. And I know what it's like, y'all, y'all I know what it's like when you uh, sit and someone brings something up that you're not in total favor with, perhaps. You think, well, they're trying to guilt me. And there can be a sense in here of Paul being accused of guilting them when he says, don't embarrass me. You've said you're, you've promised to give this gift, so make sure it's ready. The whole point Paul is making isn't guilt. You only feel, feel guilt if your heart is against that thing being talked about. My, uh, she's watching this morning. I can tell you, my mom's a good guilt tripper. And uh, I can tell you, I've 
gotten part of that too. And I've had, I've, I've had to work hard as I've studied scripture and as I've studied uh, neuroscience and psychology when I've learned that guilt is the lowest form of motivation and, and all that. And really, the only reason it would be considered a guilt trip to me is because whatever she was telling me about, I would not have been wanting to do it to begin with. Does that make sense? It's when your heart is against it. So sometimes when we see giving videos or we talk about giving, we're, we're feeling like we're getting a guilt trip to support the church because our heart isn't in it already. Paul is saying, don't feel, I'm not trying to guilt you. He's saying, I don't want it to even look like you're having to give grudgingly. So have that gift already ready. You said you would help, but if the gift isn't ready, and you had to be reminded to get it together, it looks like you're giving grudgingly out of obligation rather than out of a desire to be a blessing. So then Paul goes on and he explains in verse six, here's his point. The point is this, and I'm so glad when he tells me that, I don't have to look for the point, he's got it. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. He is expounding on a well-known Jewish proverb of reaping and sowing. We're familiar with Galatians chapter 6 verse 7 that says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. In that context, Paul is using the proverb of reaping and sowing in a negative connotation. In that context, he's saying you sow things by the flesh, you're going to reap things from the flesh. You sow things by the Spirit, you'll reap things from the Spirit. Don't think that you can go out and sow your wild oats and then God just cancel that harvest. You will have the consequences for what you've done. That's what Paul's saying. It's a negative aspect, like we find in Job 4, verse 8. It says, as I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. Proverbs 22, 8, whoever sows injustice will reap calamity and the rod of his fury will fail. But there is also a positive inference there. In, 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 the, in the proverb, there is a positive inference that if you, if you give generously, God will bless generously. Paul completes his, his thought in verse 7 when he says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Bountifully is not only talking about resources like money. God is, we're going to see when we get to verse 11 that there's other aspects that we will reap. There are other things that God will bless us with when it comes to spiritual fruit. But there is a principle that if we sow bountifully, we will reap bountifully. If we sow generously, we will reap generously. Each one must give as he decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful Giver, What is he saying? I want to remind you that the heart is the locus of a person's thoughts. It's the very center of our will, our emotions, our knowledge of what is right and what is wrong. So when Paul says he has decided in his heart, he is not talking about an emotional decision like you would make watching those commercials of mistreated, chained up, shaken dogs with a song in the background, in the arms of an angel. I hate those commercials. If, 
If it's not, if I'm not watching something recorded that I can fast forward it, I at least change the channel. I hate those commercials because they, they're tugging at your heartstrings. They're trying to make you feel guilty for how these animals are being treated and you need to give money to help these animals. On a side note, dogs have fur. Dogs are made by God to live outdoors. If you're cold, they're cold. Really? I hate those commercials. My dog's got the double, or the dog I had had, a, had German Shepherds, they had double coats. They had a coat inside and then an outer coat. I promise you, they were not cold just because I was. Bring them inside. I have allergies. That is totally off the subject. And now, I've got to try to get back to it. We've decided in our heart is not an emotional decision. For the Christian living in community, the decision to share your resources and give is made from a place of knowing, understanding, and determining in who you are that giving is God's plan, his desire, and his command for you, for us. So in our hearts, in the center of who we are in our will, we have decided at the core that we are his children and we make a decision then to give. And we do it, as said in verse 7, cheerfully. Because God loves a cheerful giver. It means we're given out of joy. It, you can read there that, and we're going to see in a moment, it was their joy to want to be a part of the giving. It is our joy to want to come together and to share our resources because it is our joy to be obedient and to please God. But we've got to keep the order straight. You've heard me say it before. We're not a blab it and grab it and name it and claim it kind of folk. We are not saying, as we have said over and over, we are not saying that we, that we give to God so that God will bless us. We don't give expecting him to multiply our resources. It's the other way around. Because we give and because we are be obedient, God can then bless our obedience. He does not bless disobedience. Let me say that again. He does not bless disobedience. Don't confuse God's unconditional love with unconditional blessing. Just go back and read Deuteronomy. God says, you do it my way, I will bless you and your days will be long in the land. Talking about the Israelites going into the promised land. But if you do it your way and against my way, then it will be stripped from you. Follow God and he will bless you. And you say, well, Kenan, that sounds very, uh, almost like he's looking for a reason to smite me. You understand, we live in a fallen world. We live in a sin-sick world that is designed by God, but that Satan has tainted through sin. And the bad things that happen in our lives the bad things of life, this darkness where we live, is an automatic result of the sin in the world. Can you all agree with me on that? We live then in obedience under an umbrella of God's protection and blessing. And when we are disobedient, God doesn't curse you, 
But because of your disobedience, he removes his umbrella. And now we are stuck to live with the results of a sick, sin-sick fallen world. We are just naturally a part of it. So we follow him. We do cheerfully. We give. We must keep the order straight. We don't do it for the blessings. We get it because of the blessings and because of our obedience. And keep this in mind. Generous is, is a relative term. Being generous is, is relative. Listen to Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning in verse 3. He said, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify. And then he says, beyond their means, that's where the generosity comes in. He gives it of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. They found the joy. They give according to their means. You've heard this before. It is not equal gifts. It's equal sacrifice. The amount I give because of my resources may be more than someone else who has less resources, but the sacrifice is the same. But you say, Kenan, I understand the principle, but there is entirely too much month left at the end of the money. Listen to what he says in verse nine, or chapter 9, verse 8. It's almost like God was expecting you to say that. He says in verse 8, and God is able. Say that with me, church. God is able. Let's try that again. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written... He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. So it's not only monetary things that you get blessed with. There's also a spiritual uh, part there where you're being blessed with spiritual fruit. It's the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. We've all heard it. You can't outgive God. Psalm 37 verse 25 answers that question of, but what about those who are, are seem to be suffering? What about those who, who do have too much month at the end of the money? Verse 25 of Psalm 37, I have been young and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. God will take care of our needs and he'll do it in his way. It may not be that, you know, remember the story of Elisha when he went to the, the woman who had a single, and she only had a little bit of oil, a little bit of flour left, and she tells Elisha after he says, bake me a cake, make me some bread, she says, well, I don't have enough, I'm getting ready to make, we're just getting ready to make our final piece, our final loaf, then me and my son was going to eat it and die. Remember that story? And Elisha says, trust God, make mine, and then see what happens. And the story goes that her flower pot never would run empty and her oil would never run dry. It's not always through the bank account that God gives us our blessing. It's not always through you being able to go to the store. And how many of you can testify to the fact that when you had a need, a very specific need, and that need needed to be met, you had no idea how it was going to happen, but God showed up. And he showed up through someone else to meet that need for you. How many of you can testify that there is no way that the money at the end of the month should have still been there? That there is no way, according to the things written on paper, that you should have been able to support yourself through what was going on. But God somehow made it happen. 
We all have been there, those of us who have been faithful in our giving. You see, our faithfulness is practical. It's tangible. It is a way that we can demonstrate that we actually do believe God. It's a way that we can demonstrate that we actually trust God, and therefore we are obedient to God, which leads not only to his, obedient, or his blessings in our life, but it also leads to thanksgiving to God from others. You may not know them. You may never meet them. You may have no idea how their need was met through you. But see, our mission here at, the, at First Baptist is to be disciples who make disciples. And part of being disciples is to help meet the needs of others. We do that through our missional work and benevolence ministries. We do that through special offerings like Lottie Moon, Annie Armstrong, Myers Mallory, the Alabama Baptist Children's Homes. We give monthly to the Limestone Baptist Association. We give to mission trips. We do service projects. All of these things are for the process of being a disciple trying to reach the world. But also part of making disciples or being a disciple is, is the idea of making disciples. That's what we're here for. So that means here in our local church, we are doing things here on campus. Like we're having Sunday school and we got children's ministries and we got student ministries and we have a worship ministry and, and we have various Bible studies and men's ministry and women's ministry and all of these ministries going on. And it includes all of these things along with paying salaries and paying property insurance and keeping the lights on and all of those kinds of things. And you say, well, Kenan, they didn't have buildings like this in the book of Acts. You know, you're right. They didn't. They also walked everywhere. So if you want to go get rid of your car and then walk to each other's houses for house church, you're welcome to do that. But we often talk about making sure that we are doing missions correctly. We don't go to Africa and try to make them Americans. We use the African culture to reach the African people for God. And so we teach them, don't go over there and try to make them American Christians. You let them be African Christians. You let them do it in their culture. And truth is, in our culture, here in the United States, we do buildings. We do cushiony chairs. Because I promise you, if you walked in next week and I had cinder blocks and boards set down for you to sit on, I would hear about it before the day was over. I would hear about it before the service started. It's just our culture. And part of that means we have to bring in tithes and offerings to be able to do what we're called to do here at First Baptist. Paul finishes this chapter expounding on the usage of the resources given by the Corinthians. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 12. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. In other words, because you say you're a believer, because you say you're a follower of Jesus, you're going to do what Jesus calls you to do, and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. And look at verse 15. Thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift. I'd be honest, I, I had trouble writing a conclusion for this. There are times I think I'm, I get into things and I just say, I'll let the Holy Spirit lead as we get to the end and let him tell me what you need to hear from me. And I'll be honest, I don't know. 
as Wasted and the Band comes, I don't know how this has struck you this morning. I don't know if this is something that you're already faithful in and God then has your mind going elsewhere because you've got this. And he does that with me sometimes. Sometimes there's whatever the pastor's preaching on every once in a while doesn't speak to me directly and God shows me something else. But that's still something he has shown you this morning that he wants you to deal with. Or maybe you say, Kenan, I'll be honest, I haven't been faithful in giving. Church, please hear me. We're not after your money. I know that's how it comes across sometimes. What we are after is your holiness. For you to be more like Jesus. And for you to be more like Jesus... That means you are going to be obedient to him in all areas of your life. He has commanded, it is obedience to give. It gives us joy and it glorifies and pleases our Father when we do that. And you've heard me say this before and I alluded alluded to it earlier. This is the one area in our lives that is a very tangible, practical way to show We trust God. What other area is so poignantly directed at showing our trust in God? We say it. We can say we trust Him. We say we believe Him. Yet in this one area that is so practical, we don't always show it.